Welcome to our podcast, Neurology Morning Commute, getting up to speed on multiple sclerosis management. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. Over the past several decades, treatments for multiple sclerosis have evolved from virtually none before 1993 to a plethora of choices now. Dr. James Bowen and Dr. Jeannie Cote look at the array of treatment options and how to choose the best ones for MS patients. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS7. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bowen is the medical director of the Multiple Sclerosis Center at Swedish Neuroscience Institute in Seattle. Dr. Cote is a neurologist at the Multiple Sclerosis Center at the Memorial Healthcare Institute for Neuroscience in Owasa, Michigan. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bowen will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast, Neurology Morning Commute. Today, we'll be talking about getting up to speed on MS management. I'm James Bowen, the medical director of the Multiple Sclerosis Center at Swedish Neuroscience Institute. I'm joined by Dr. Jeannie Cote, a neurologist at the Multiple Sclerosis Center at the Memorial Healthcare Institute for Neuroscience in Owasa, Michigan. Dr. Cote, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to participating in this today. Let's start our discussion by taking a 30,000-foot view of the current treatment landscape for MS. We've come a long way for the treatment of this chronic disease. Uh, When I first started, uh, there were no treatments for MS. Uh, It was a very simple uh, field, but uh, we got our first treatment in 1993, which was uh, interferon beta-1b. And uh, then as far as early injectables go, we have now uh, four different types of interferon. Uh, We've got uh, glutaramoracetate as well as generics for that. And also in the uh, injectable, uh, there was new one added in 2020, ofatumumab. We started uh, having intravenous infusions in 2000 when mitoxantrone came out, uh, which was also the first drug approved uh, for what back then was called chronic progressive MS. We started getting intravenous uh, treatments available in 2000 when mitoxantrone was added. This was the first drug approved for a progressive form of MS. Uh, Back then it was called chronic progressive MS. Uh, Natalizumab was added in 2004, and then uh, later in 2014, alemtuzumab, and most recently, ocrelizumab in uh, 2017. Uh, Oral options are now available uh, with the sphingosin-1-phosphate modulator, uh, first uh, started in 2010 uh, with fingolimod. Uh, We now have four members of that family. We have teraflunamide added in 2012 and fumarates uh, added in 2013 with now three fumarates on the market. Uh, Finally, uh, there's oral cladribine, which was added in 2019. Uh, So we have quite a large number of medications that have been added in the last few years for this treatment. 
So Dr. Uh, Cote, uh, sticking with our 30,000 foot view, maybe you can uh, discuss with us uh, sort of how, how you view how to, how to go about picking the right therapy for a patient with MS. I'm happy to. You know, it's, it's funny to hear you list all of them. It really is impressive at how many therapeutic options we've really been able to really have access to now over the last few decades. You know, when patients come in, it really just starts with, you know, a conversation about their journey with MS so far, what have their presenting symptoms been, what type of symptoms are they coming in to see me with as far as any residual disability. And that sort of helps, I think, them get a sense of how much risk they're willing to accept related to treatment and what they're prioritizing out of treatment. Because I might think a drug is perfect for a patient, but if they're not committed to going down that path with me, we're not going to get very far. So really a lot of it is first just learning how MS has affected them and what they're really prioritizing as far as what they want out of treatment and how much risk they're willing to accept from a treatment. And then my job is to really take a look at the treatments available, the data that we have on them and see, are there clues about a patient's case that make me favor one treatment more than another? And can I find a treatment that works within their risk tolerance and kind of matches what they're prioritizing out of treatment? So some patients might say, you know, 20 years from now, I want to be able to walk my daughter down an aisle. Or a patient might say, no matter what, I don't ever want to face PML, which is, um, you know, a brain infection that we rarely see out of our treatments. And so a part of it is really just meeting the patient halfway. And then part of it is really using the data from the trials and just from regular use of practice with these medicines and seeing how they've worked in real patients in real time to find the right treatment. And other things that I think we'll talk about a bit later might be things like other health conditions and you know age and other kind of prognostic factors. But really, it starts with a blend of what the patient's looking for and what I'm hoping to achieve for them. Yeah, I think but, this is uh, it's very challenging because I, I think we have a similar approach here where uh, we don't really have a favorite drug. It's uh, you really have to get to know your patient and where they're coming from and uh, what they value. Uh, do they want higher efficacy? Or are they worried about certain side effects? So it um, sounds like we, we both spend a lot of time uh, just getting to know them and understanding where they view the risk and the benefit. What I do find, though, in general, that does not work well, and I still see this done quite a bit, is I'll ask a patient who's been on treatment in the past, how was this treatment chosen for you? Was it something you asked for? Were you told to take it? You know, what was the conversation that led to this treatment being chosen? Because it really helps me get a sense of how a patient thinks about a treatment or maybe how educated they are in the process of treatment selection. And often I'll hear, I was given a pamphlet or a booklet and I was told to pick. And, you know, there are so many treatments that you listed and there's so much to know about these treatments. And for people who do this on a regular basis, it's overwhelming to put your arms around how many therapeutic options we have. And so I think to ask a patient to pick from a pamphlet with this level of option really is no longer really something that I think we should be doing as providers. I think we really do have to work with that patient to narrow down those options and really guide them at this stage in the game. Yeah, I would 
totally agree with what you just said. Uh, the ones that get the starter kits uh, and uh, you know, read these three starter kits and uh, let me know what you want. Uh, they really don't have the buy-in uh, yeah. for that drug and uh, they're not as adherent over time uh, as, as a result. So yeah, I think it takes a lot of time uh, with the patient and it's, uh, it's difficult to just circumvent that by saying, you know, go do your own homework given this material. So I, I'm glad to hear you do it similar to us. Although I will say, I, I will give patients some literature and say, make it a date night, take a weekend. This is your homework. We'll circle back in a few days to answer questions. And it may take a couple conversations, but I think the more confident they are with the plan early on, the less bumps in the road you're going to get, you know, in the long run, obviously. Yeah, I would agree. And um, it's, it's, uh, worthwhile taking a little bit of time up front uh, to get it right uh, rather than rushing the decision uh, and maybe having them not have full buy-in in that decision. You know, the other thing I do like to tell patients is, you know, these are important decisions to make, but we're never also locked in to a treatment. You know, there's always an opportunity to, to change course, you know, and it's important to make decisions, but these decisions aren't forever decisions. So as, as overwhelming as it can feel sometimes to say, what's the right treatment for a patient, there's a lot of surveillance that goes in after that decision's made that really helps, you know, reaffirm if we're on the right path or not. So I think starting with something is important, but also knowing that that something isn't a forever choice and that there's always flexibility to come at this a different way um, really, I think helps patients also feel more comfortable taking these these medications and and kind of trusting me trusting me to help guide them. How much does uh, side effects play into uh, to your thinking on this? Because um, uh, I know you're an MS specialist and use all the drugs, but uh, the doctor also has to be comfortable. And side effects are probably where um, the big pressure point for the neurologist is. Yes. You know, I wonder if having trained in an era where all of these were really part of the normal landscape and not new innovation after innovation, you know, over the years, I, you know, I really, my fellowship was at a time where we were using alemtuzumab and using B-cell, you know, modulating agents. So to me, this was sort of the normal um, kind of normal surroundings to use these types of medications. It wasn't that I had only had platform therapies and now these new innovations came and I had to really kind of decide how much risk I wanted to take using these medications. It was sort of my stomping ground was to use them. And having a, a parent with MS who has been on a variety of medications over years, I think also just gave me a very just a really different experience of seeing what a patient's experience on these different medicines and what side effects really could look like both from, you know, what I perceive a loved one going through and what they're reporting as, as potential side effects. And so for me, you know, in general, I feel like we can make any medication work. And in general, I think these are incredibly well tolerated across the board. And while every medication has a unique side effect profile, in general, I always feel that undertreated and untreated MS comes with so much more side effect than appropriate and safe, responsible use of these medications. And, and I feel that a hundred times over, you know, it, we can use these medicines in general. They're incredibly well tolerated. I can usually always find a good fit for a patient. Extreme side effects where I really had to step in and manage major complications is incredibly rare for the 
you know, many, many, many patients that I see, you know, so in, in general, I, to me, the bigger side effect is undertreated MS always. Yeah, there's definitely been a shift toward being more aggressive in our treatment. I might uh, also comment about just adherence and, um, you know, back in former days when we only had a few options, uh, I think adherence was a much bigger problem. Um, it, it's still a problem, but nowadays we can often shift treatments to address whatever the reason for the adherence uh, was. So, you know, some examples of that would be like, uh, you know, moving away from the injectables toward oral or intravenous uh, medications is uh, often a good option to improve adherence, um, uh, particularly some of the infrequent injections, you uh, with the intravenous infusions, you know when the patient got infused and when they're late for their next infusion. Um, also, we're able to shift around. To, if they have one side effect they didn't like, we can shift to something else that doesn't have that side effect. And um, uh, just having more choices to switch to, I think has made a, um, a real difference. Uh, one other factor about adherence is some of these medications have long lasting effects on the immune system. And you know that can be a, a negative because the effects are long lasting, but it can also be a positive because it smooths out adherence problems uh, and allows uh, you know, people to maintain their uh, immune treatment, even maybe if they're a little bit late on getting their next uh, treatment. I assume you've noticed several things uh, like that in your practice. I think the patients, have, for some of them, have really loved the freedom of not having to think about having MS every time they take a daily treatment. You know, so interrupted treatments have really, I think, given some patients peace of mind. You know, others really love the security of a daily a daily treatment. So it's just really nice to have options that meet the needs of all patients. And then how do you, uh, in, when you're individualizing this treatment, how do you take into account uh, various disease factors that might predict who needs more aggressive treatment or less aggressive treatment? Uh, what, what sort of factors do you think about? So I'm absolutely looking at... Um, First and foremost, probably what their clinical and radiologic kind of course look like. So how frequent are the relapses now that we know that they have MS, especially that, you know, in the beginning stages, where are their attacks happening? Are these primarily optic nerve, spinal cord, or cerebellar? Um, so if I'm seeing someone who has a lot of spinal cord or infratentorial burden, you know, I, I worry about their reserve and I think that they have less wiggle room to tolerate more hits to the system. And I want to come out with a very, you know, strong um, treatment that's not going to leave much room for breakthrough relapse. Um, if they've been on other treatments before, you know, it, that might influence where I want to go next. If someone's breaking through a medicine, I'll want to move to a higher efficacy versus if it's a tolerability issue, then I might be looking at a lateral efficacy move. And then things like age or other health conditions could influence, medications can influence as well. If someone's on a certain cardiac regimen, you know, that's gonna take priority. I have lots of MS options, you know, treatment-wise that I could be using. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot that kind of factors into the decision-making, but for me, first and foremost, it's gonna be, 
the, the symptoms, the level of disability and the MRI findings to help me know how much reserve I, I'm estimating that they have and how much wiggle room we have moving forward. Right. Yeah, I use a similar set of um, uh, demographic and MRI and uh -huh. disease characteristic uh, findings. Um, I reviewed this uh, a couple of years ago and um, I was surprised uh, even though you know, we think about all these factors that um, they're not real strong predictors of uh, bad or less bad disease. And the one factor that's probably the strongest that we could also emphasize with our listeners is that um, the best prognostic indicator is, is whether they're continuing to have disease activity after you start them on treatment. So, um, you know, just a plug for people to keep monitoring their patients. You know, I, I a thousand percent agree. I think the one thing that I see repeated again and again are patients coming to clinic and their last MRI was a decade ago because they had been feeling well. Mm -hmm. And if you're keeping careful watch, it's hard for major things to get away from you. You know, even if someone feels well, that is wonderful, but I don't trust that. I want to verify with imaging, an exam, you know, whatever I have at my disposal to evaluate to really try to be confident that we are doing the best we can at this stage. And uh, what, uh, well, obviously you would escalate if they're having new activity, but do you have mm -hmm. some sort of guidelines that you follow or, you know, your own personal uh, views of when to escalate treatment? So... I think easiest is obviously if there's breakthrough disease activity, um, you know, on a, on a therapy, then I want to escalate, whether that's, you know, active or expanding lesions on an MRI or a new clinical relapse that I'm really convinced is related to breakthrough disease and not, you know, urinary tract infection or something. Um, but we also spend a lot of time talking about listening for the whispers of progression. So, you know, sometimes it's not so obvious and I'll carefully sort of review my past few notes to look for serial changes on exam or ways patients have worded things that have suggested continued creep of change. And more and more, I'm also really starting to make changes in that context as well any, so, so both kind of the obvious, but even the subtle is, is starting for me at least to be a talking point about are we using the right treatment. And then one hot topic these days is whether you uh, start out with lower efficacy drugs and escalate if patients have more attacks or whether you just start out uh, with a high efficacy drug from the beginning that may have more side effects. And uh, uh, how do you uh, think about that? And um, how, how do we decide how to start the treatment? So I am in the camp of early high efficacy for, for most patients um, who are coming to me new diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that, you know, is I am, you know, I, I do take into consideration my mom's journey. You know, she was given the best therapies at that time and has a you know, significant level of disability at this point. And so part of it is I don't want to do the same thing. And I, you know, trained in an era of high efficacy medicines, and I want to see if we use those more readily and more quickly what we get. And I think there's a lot of studies that have, have really shown early use, you know, will delay EDSS changes 
and accumulated disability and MRI metrics. And this has been looked at in many different ways. And I think there are clues that this will change the future landscape. Um, that said, is it appropriate for everybody? No. Um, but I think for the vast majority of my new diagnoses with inflammatory disease, I tend to lean towards early use of a high efficacy therapy. I'm not sure how you are with your practice, but at least <laughs> over in Michigan, that, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I think uh, more and more we are uh, comfortable with early aggressive treatment. And um, I thought I would point out there are two studies that uh, we're all uh, anxiously awaiting the results on. But one is treat MS, where yes. people are randomly assigned to, to these two treatment options, early aggressive or early standard treatment. And uh, the results from that study should be available at the end of next year, so the end of 2023. Uh, there's also Deliver MS, uh, where they are, uh, again, similarly looking at early aggressive versus standard treatment, and um, they're looking more at brain volume, and uh, that study uh, will not be available, or the results will not be available till uh, the end of 2026, so four more years from now. I think I will move on to the last topic, and that's uh, a lot of people have questioned like the ultimate in aggressive treatment, which is hematopoietic stem cell transplants. Uh, and uh, this is uh, it's like the old bone marrow transplants, except it's stem cells, not bone marrow that they're transplanting. And I've been heavily involved in this for several years. And um, it looks like from phase two studies that this may an extremely aggressive treatment uh, may be very effective at uh, slowing or stopping uh, MS activity, especially in people with relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. We've gone as far as phase two studies. And uh, so uh, now uh, just recently a phase three study called BEAT MS is underway and is now recruiting. Uh, they're uh, taking people and randomly assigning them to either a transplant or aggressive treatment with standard uh, treatments. This would be a cladribine, uh, natalizumab, alemtuzumab, oprilizumab, uh, ofatumumab, or rituximab. So all the, the MABs uh, plus uh, cladribine. And um, they have to have two attacks in the last 36 months to get into the study. At least one of those has to be on an oral or IV treatment. So they're feeling aggressive treatment before they go into this. Uh, and the plan is to follow them for six years um, and see what the outcomes are uh, at the end of that time. So uh, I don't know if uh, your patients are having questions uh, about those types of aggressive treatments, but this is probably the one that's, uh, that will at least answer the question whether ultra aggressive treatment is going to be useful. Oh, yes. It comes up almost every day. So I'm really looking forward to getting some more clarity on, on how hard we should be advocating for this. Yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, study itself has been slow getting out of the starting blocks because of COVID, but uh, mm, most of the yeah. sites are now starting to ramp up now that this current wave has, uh, uh, has subsided. So um, hopefully we'll get uh, some good data coming out soon. Great. 
Well, um, this has been a great discussion, Dr. Cote. I'd like to thank you for uh, joining me in this. Um, our, in our next podcast, we'll be specifically looking at second-generation sphingosin-1-phosphate receptor modulators. So I hope you're able to join us for that. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS7. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services. Thank you for joining us today.